Welcome to What Are You Reading, a podcast dedicated to leadership development through a commitment to reading. This is your host, Bridget Calhoun. Today, we welcome our first guest author of the season. Gail Tamak Lamont is the author of the New York Times bestsellers, Ashley's War, The Untold Story of a Team of Women Soldiers on the Special Ops Battlefield, and The Dressmaker of Care Kana. Ashley's War is currently being developed into a major motion picture at Universal Studios. Her most recent book, The Daughters of Kobani, A Story of Rebellion, Courage, and Justice, was just published on February 16th and tells the story of Kurdish women who served as America's ground force partners in the fight to defeat ISIS in Syria. Gail is also an adjunct senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and holds private sector leadership roles in emerging technology and national security. She regularly appears on CNN, PBS, MSNBC, and NPR, and she has spoken on national security topics at the Aspen Security Forum, the Clinton Global Initiative, and TED. A graduate of Harvard Business School, she serves on the board of Mercy Corps and is a member of the Bretton Woods Committee. Ma'am, welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to be here with you. Our first question we always ask our guests is, what are you currently reading? Oh my gosh. Well, I'm reading a children's book on Lionel Messi, the soccer player, for my son. Uh, and then I am reading, actually, I'm going back to read a bunch of things that I had wanted to. And I wanted to recommend a couple of books. One of them is The House at Sugar Beach by Helene Cooper on Liberia. It is just this book that stayed with me. I read it and then I went back to read it when I could finally read uh, for pleasure again. And then I just think there are a couple books coming out that I want uh, people to know about. And one is from Jess Donati. So I just want everybody to know that she has just written uh, a great book that is coming out soon. And, and I just think there's just not enough time in the world to talk about all the amazing books that are out there. But I just hope people are picking up books that people are putting out in the world, because this is quite a time for us to connect with the stories that mean something, you know, that in this moment, I think of COVID when we're all looking for both an escape and connection. Absolutely. And that's a theme we commonly hear on this show as well. And I was happy to hear you say you went back to read a book that had been a favorite. And that's a good segue into my next question about if you have any other specific books or mentors who've had a significant impact on your career and just your learning that you've had so far. There are so many. I mean, I think there are books that really shaped me. And one was Black Hawk Down. When I was working on Ashley's War, I actually thought a lot about Black Hawk Down and how it started with one soldier and worked its way out, and which was really the reporting process for me and the privilege of telling the story of Ashley's War. Then the other book that I think has really meant a lot to me is uh, The Meditations of Marcus Aurelius, which is actually the opening of The Daughters of Kobani. Uh, the best revenge is not to be like your enemy. I have read The Meditations of Marcus Aurelius probably 15, 20 times in my life. Every time I've had a moment of adversity also. Uh, and Sebastian Younger is a friend, and he's also just somebody who has been enormously supportive of this work. And then on the fiction side, I mean, Jhumpa Lahiri, I love with a deep passion. Uh, Arundhati Roy, God of Small Things. So, you know, I think there's so much. I, I go to bookstores and I can't, <laughs> I can't control myself. So, you know, it's one of those things that I don't have enough time because I work and write books and have three children. So I, 
quite honestly, by 1 a.m. when I finally go to bed, it's hard. But I love to dig in when I can. And I think that's the importance of having books we can go back to read, where we still enjoy them. It doesn't seem as laborious. You can just keep it by your bedside and pick it up. And I'm really happy to hear that uh, Marcus Aurelius is one that you do turn to because that whole genre, classical Greece, classical Rome, can see a, a bit intimidating for some people, but there's just a lot of time-honored truths that can come from that. And I hope your endorsement of it will will lead more people to get into that genre because I think it's one that has a lot of fruits for military members. I hope so. And then, but then one day we'll talk about TV, which I love, like with the passion of a latchkey kid. So... <laughs> Well, turning to Ashley's War, ma'am, I think I can speak for my whole generation of ladies service members that we really appreciate you telling this story. And a lot of us that were young lieutenants back then are now moving into the field grade ranks of the military and we're responsible for coaching that next generation of women leaders. What drew you into writing Ashley's War? And now that women are allowed to serve in combat arms, what advice would you give to high school and college age women who are interested in military service? My advice would be, which is the same actually advice that really comes out of the Daughters of Kobani, because they're really so many of the same themes, is to, as my aunt, who's a survivor of domestic violence and never even got her high school GED, but managed to work in the Reagan White House, would always say, never import other people's limitations. And it's really a theme that has struck me in all the books I've had the privilege of writing, now there are three. So, so strange to think that there are three of these, you know, it's a lot of people to live in your head for a long time. But so many times people are very quick to tell women what is not accessible and what is not possible. And then the moment you do it, they're the first people to say, I knew you could. So I just hope people listening really realize that uh, there are no limits to what is capable what you're capable of, whether you're a man or a woman. And that military history is made by people of all walks of life. And it's really important to all of us in this country. That's such a powerful message. And I think even more powerful coming from someone like you, who's been so successful in your own career, but who's also studied this, that you really need to have that inner drive yourself and what other restrictions people may put on you or you think might exist out there are, are definitely not a reason to feel like you've got impediments to do what you would like to go do. And I think that's also why the female engagement teams and cultural support teams were really so innovative because it was a concept people had not really considered. It leveraged untapped potential to meet a big capabilities gap that we had during the global war on terror. Do you think that right now there are any other similar opportunities within the military or the private sector where there's untapped potential out there that maybe if we just tweaked it or brought it into light, we could meet some of our national security threats? Listen, the theme that has animated all the work I've had the privilege of doing is that suffocated opportunity is the enemy of global stability. And for anybody who cares about America's national security, or stability within the world writ large in the post-war rules-based order, it really matters that we access everyone's talent. This is not a nice to have, this is an America's self-interest. Uh, we do not have talent to waste. And you know, the first work I started doing in the overseas context was actually writing about women entrepreneurs, conflict and post-conflict in Afghanistan, which is a country I really fell in love with. You know, truly some of the most generous, most resilient people I've ever met anywhere in the world. 
And I really hope that Dressmaker O'Connor does justice to those young women who were breadwinners during years when they couldn't be on their own streets, right? And then Ashley's war about young women who put their hands up to say, I will serve when their nation asked not to serve a political point, but to serve with purpose when their nation needed them. So uh, yeah, I, and then of course the Daughters of Kobani, which is a whole other reframing of the war story because all of the people leading in battle in this story are women. And they were the American interlocutors. And the important thing, I think, especially for this audience, is that um, this was a story where the Americans played a huge role. And when so many of the folks who talked to me for this book were U.S. service members who had just enormous respect for the leadership and actually for the warrior ethos, to quote them, of these women. And and that is what I really wanted to capture uh, in this story. If we can focus on The Dressmaker briefly, that was a book you wrote on female entrepreneurship, as you said, and it was your first one. So in this book, you tell the story of Camila Siddiqui and other Afghan women who struggled to protect their families and make a living under Taliban rule. So can you tell us a little bit about some of their stories and just reflect in general on how women's lives have either improved or worsened during the past 20 years of conflict in Afghanistan? The dressmaker of Karkana is a testament to all these young women who managed to be breadwinners during years when they could not be on their own streets. And this was never about some foreigner coming to save them. It was about young women whose teenagers, whose ingenuity, creativity, persistence, and entrepreneurial drive allowed them to manufacture hope at a time that was really desperate. I mean, people were selling doors and windows and baby dolls and shoelaces and anything of value to get through those years. And so you know, I wanted to give credit where it was due. I wanted to shine a light on young women who had made the difference between survival and starvation for their neighborhoods. Uh, And it was amazing to me to see people be inspired, you know, and I think whether it's Afghanistan or now Northeastern Syria, they're not places that many Americans think of as sources of inspiration. And yet so many readers already have written to say that, you know, I'm so inspired by what these women did in service to their nation, in service to their neighborhood. And they're just, you know, like women like in your neighborhood, in my neighborhood, who stand up to do something when needed. Right. And I think there is that sense of hope and beauty that comes out of these really dark times where there's a lot of evil, a lot of suffering, but sometimes that darkness is needed in order to highlight the light and to bring it to light. So I think it's a good lesson that if we're suffering any sort of adversity or difficulty in our own lives, that there is definitely good that can come of it. We can turn to these stories for inspiration, as you did say, and know that there are proven paths out there for how we can overcome those. So thank you for bringing a lot of those lessons to light, because especially in COVID, there's been a lot of difficulties people have had in one way or another. So it's good to know that you can succeed in the midst of all of that. It's true. And I mean, I think another book that's really worth reading is right here, Our Women on the Ground, which is, you know, a lot of women who are reporters in the Middle East finding, I mean, I think for me, it's a source of hope just to see all these amazing writers out there chronicling their own nations, even through their hardships, even through adversity. It's not that it's always a good news story. It's that it's always worth witnessing. We need writers to be able to bring them to the forefront, too, because otherwise we, we wouldn't hear about them. So, ma'am, I'd like to give you a chance now to talk about your newly released book, The Daughters of Kobani. So here you bring the reader into civil war-torn Syria, which has been one of the worst humanitarian crises in the past 100 years. 
So how do the women that you profile offer hope for Syria and the Kurdish nation in the midst of so much suffering and loss? This is really the David and Goliath story about the women who stood up to take on the men who bought and sold women as part of who they were. And it's really a story about what happens when David is also a woman. You know, this is a story of urban combat. It's a story of military history. For your audience, it's a buy with and through that did exactly what it set out to, or a CT plus in the parlance of President Biden when he was vice president. Uh, this really is a story about what happens when you can mix the light footprint of U.S. Special Operations Forces on the ground plus uh, U.S. air power with a very committed ground force that has the will to not just take terrain, but keep it and advance. And I heard so many stories uh, that people shared with me as they were you know, giving me the honor of, of sharing time, just talking about well, one uh, special operations soldier said, you know, I would say to them when I was talking to them, you should move back. You, know, you can't be this close to, to where, where it's going to fall on the ground, you know, from the air. They said, no, no, we can advance faster if we stay closer, you know, to this. <laughs> Wait a minute, you know, are you sure? Yes, I am sure. And there's story after story like that. Some of the Americans told me actually, you know, um, they started sleeping on their base during the campaign for Kobani in 2014 because they were so worried that they would miss the opportunity to support these people who were fighting with such heart for their homeland. And this really is the story, the Daughters of Kobani, of the all-women force that showed not only what it looked like to fight the Islamic State, but to fight for women's rights and to fight for equality, not as a peripheral to what they were doing, but right at the center, right at the heart of what they stood for and what they wanted. And do you have any sense of how these women are doing now? Obviously, the U.S. has drawn down in Syria. Do you still keep contact with any of them or just have any sense on if their gains that they achieved in partnership with the U.S. they've been able to sustain after we ceased our combat operations? Yes. Look, I, I was in uh, northeastern Syria about uh, six weeks after the Turkish-backed incursion. And what amazed me was how much hope there still was and how much very fragile but very real stability there was. It was obviously a difficult time and a question mark has always hung over U.S. policy in Syria and always hung over U.S. policy specifically in northeastern Syria. And the book really dives into that and but, but looks at it from the personal perspective of what does it look like to be America's partner? What does it feel like? Um, and what does it feel like to fight the Islamic State room by room house by house and town by town for a half decade. There's no deployments, right? I mean, this is what, this was everyday life. And there, the book opens with a trip to the front line in Raqqa in summer of 2017. You know, and here I am all kitted up, helmet and, and armor and all of this. And you know, the, the commander who takes us to the front line just has a scarf over her head, a curtain over her back window. And she's wondering, going, look at this, ISIS just bombed us again. And she's showing me this still smoking car bomb. And you think about what that's like to think about that that's their everyday commute to work, right? With no let up. And they did the world's work. They did the work of being the world's ground force in the fight to stop the Islamic State so that it would be much harder to launch attacks in the region against Europe and certainly against the United States. Yes. And I think this story is just so powerful. And as you said, showing it from the allies perspective, and we've heard a lot in the news over the last several years that 
some of our allies don't think that we're as willing to fight beside them, whatever it might be. But this story is just a great testament to America being a trustworthy partner. And we can't do it alone, for sure. We need to have those committed people on the ground that look at the problem differently, that are invested in a completely different way than we are. And I think this can serve as a great case study going forward, whether it's a counterinsurgency, counterterrorism fight, or a broader conflict. So um, are there any specific lessons learned you would recommend going forward, ma'am? Absolutely. And I'm, I'm so glad you asked, especially for that. I've been waiting to talk to a military audience <laughs> about this. So I think, first of all, the by, with, and through is very important. This is the first time where there was no large deployment because the ghost of the Iraq war hung over every decision made on Syria and continues to, right? I mean, and the book really goes into this, America's hunt for policy on Syria and goes into the, the search for this kind of Goldilocks force, right? That was willing to fight the Islamic State to the death, but not to topple the Assad regime. And the book really goes into the reasons why, because for this Kurdish minority, there was deep concern that maybe that you, for, by, for folks who had been jailed by the Assad regime, tortured by the Assad regime, that what came could be worse for this minority. So the Americans are watching, you, know, you have to rewind to 2014, ISIS had never been beaten. They were on this glittery string of wins. And the Americans I've talked to, you know, talked to me about watching it from, from Erbil and being, holy cow, they just took Mosul. You know, this is serious. And being very worried about what was coming next and about how close they were getting to Erbil itself. So, you know, I think the by, with, and through actually delivering what it set out to uh, as a partner force did the fighting and dying. Uh, they lost 10,000 of their own. Uh, in the ground fight against the Islamic State. And it looks different because when you were on the ground, you never saw the Americans. They were the Oz-like presence that kind of hung over the whole thing without you ever seeing them. And the book really takes readers into what it looked like for these women, what it smelled like for these women, what the what were they eating for dinner, you know, what did it look like to call in a US airstrike uh, and try to save 20 of your fellow fighters who are pinned down by ISIS. Uh, and the women who just risked everything for their fellow fighters. Um, so I think that's the by, with, and through piece. I think there is that whole piece of CT light in this. You know, there's a lot of sense, I think, here in the United States that the U.S. military can do anything. But among the U.S. military folks, there was a deep sense of the limitations of U.S. air power. And there's a great piece in Air Force magazine right now uh, about uh, this exact topic, about the air campaign. But the folks on the ground could never have fought to the win in Kobani without U.S. air power, but U.S. air power alone would not have stopped ISIS. And so the two were actually deeply interconnected and deeply aligned strategically. And so watching that happen and knowing that one could not work without the other, I think is also a very powerful lesson uh, to have learned. And then the third thing is just so fascinating that you know a lot of the men from special operations who talked with me had never worked with women in the partner force. And what was amazing to them was, you know, one of them said, I was kind of nervous at the beginning, but then I realized immediately that the warrior ethos was the same. And there's this beautiful moment, and I will never forget from our interviews of, you know, another special operations soldier who's been his entire adult life fighting America's wars in the post 9-11 conflict. All these men, 12, 13, 14, 15 deployments, in the post 9-11 wars. Less than 1% of this country has fought 100% of its wars for two decades. And they said to me, 
uh, when said, you know, I, I went to the rally point, I went to the meeting point four when they're all about to go. I think this was in Shadati. Uh, and he said, I'm looking around and I'm watching, you know, 25 or 30 young women, some with flowers in their hair and their fatigues and their hiking boots and their AK-47 slung over their shoulders. And they're all whooping it up and giving each other high fives and hugs. He said, and I had just this, you know, really strange mix of emotions. I felt, you know, shame that I couldn't go with them, guilt that I couldn't go with them to the front lines because of U.S. policy because I could have helped maybe save some of their lives because I knew how tough the fight was going to be. Pride in the warriors that they were, um, you know, envy in some ways that they got to go and bring the fight to these men who clearly could not stand, right? And just deep respect for the fighters who they were and wanted to be. And he said, you know, I kept thinking of the, the MacArthur speech at West Point, duty, honor, country. Yes. And I love that detail you brought up about the flowers in their hair, their hiking boots, they've got their weapons. And that reminds me a lot of your opening to Ashley's War, where you're talking about how these women could crush a workout, they would go do a ruck march, bench press, whatever it might be, and then they would come back and bake cookies or muffins or something like that. And that's something I personally really appreciate about your writing. And I think even just your own example that you exhibit is describing women's role in the military as a both and, meaning that we can be warriors and we can still be ladies. And being a woman in the military doesn't mean you have to sacrifice your femininity because there's inherent strengths that we have as women that are force multipliers on the battlefield, as we saw with the cultural support teams, as we see with these Kurdish fighters. But sometimes it can feel like there's a lot of pressure to be one or the other. You need to be the career woman or you need to be the stay-at-home mom. So how have you managed that pressure or those twin identities in your life? Any advice out there for the rest of us that are still trying to figure it out? Yes, I have three words. Listen to no one. Truly. I really mean that. You know, I was raised in a community of single moms. Everybody I knew went to work at least one job, mostly two, sometimes three, to support their kids. And it just was never a discussion. Do what you want, right? Um, it's work no matter what, whether you're staying home with children or whether you're uh, going uh, outside to work, who cares what other people are doing? That is the message young women need to hear, which is do your thing. That's it. Nobody has to approve. And that was actually really fascinating to me. There was a day, and actually I write in the book in Daughters of Kobani that never had I seen women more comfortable with power and less apologetic about being in charge. And it looks different. It looks different when women lead and it looks different when women lead without caring what other people think about it. It's a radical notion. And I think part of how these women achieved that real indifference to other people's thought was A, winning on the battlefield. And um, then also having an ideology that said the Kurds could not be free until women were free. And there's a great moment <laughs> when, um, the uh, I, I interviewed Rojdaf a lot and I spent a lot of time with her. And by the end, she was like, oh, God, Gail, you know, some of you listening might know, right? You know, many in special operations community worked with her uh, who deployed. So she was one of the leaders of the campaign to retake Raqqa from ISIS, which was a brutal fight. Brutal. And she's just this very introverted, very quiet uh, person who loves uh, Argentinian football. Or is it Argentine? Forgive me. Oh my gosh, I'm going to get lots of mail about that. Uh, and love Maradona, you know, and and also 
uh, you know, thought she might be a pharmacist, right? And ends up becoming this fighter who leads women and men in battle. And the thing that is so striking with her, as I said to her, you know, why did you start the all women's units, the women's protections units in 2013? Right, because at that point, these women already had faced off against Nusra and other Al-Qaeda-like groups. Uh, so they already were fighting alongside men. And according to their ideology, they already had equality, right? They had full equality already. And she looked at me and she said, you know, look, you cannot let stand a world in which men buy and sell women and think that women are property. And secondly, we just didn't want men taking credit for our work. And I said, you know what? That is when you know you have a universal story because there's no woman listening. I don't care who you are, who has not felt that. And, and it was the universality of that. Also the humanity of who they were. I mean, the inhumanity of ISIS and of this fight against the Islamic State that I wanted to show. Absolutely. And the universality, I think, is 100% there. And that's what's made this story and all the other ones that you've told so powerful and it keeps all of your readers clamoring for more. So would you be able to share with us a little bit just about your writing process? We have a lot of junior officers that aspire maybe not to write a whole book, but get an opinion piece out there or something like that. Any tips for just sitting down and committing to something that you want to put on paper? I will quote the amazing Nancy Dupree. And if you all don't know who she is, you must go up and go look her up right this moment. One of the most special people, and I've had the privilege of meeting many special people, she was an American who lived for six decades of her life in Afghanistan and who ended up leaving behind the Afghanistan Center, Kabul University, one of the most uh, wonderful research centers I've ever worked in with all young, talented, incredible young women, young men working there from, uh, from Afghanistan, from across the country, but and uh, now living in Kabul to go to Kabul University. She just dedicated her life to doing something that mattered and also to a country she loved. I mean, she deeply loved Afghanistan, helped to uh, preserve its cultural heritage and to be uh, a citizen who contributed, right? Who helped untap all that incredible talent of young women and young men of Afghanistan who the world does not know enough of. And who, when you, the minute you are there, you see just what an incredible young generation that this is. So she said, I said to her, I was there, I was actually very pregnant during dressmaker when I was finishing research. I was in Afghanistan, probably six and a half or seven months pregnant. We're talking and I found out I was pregnant in Afghanistan while working on dressmaker. Uh, and I said, so we're sitting there. I'll never forget. I was very pregnant. I said, Oh God, Nancy, you know, trying to finish this book. What am I going to do? And she said, what are you going to do? Louis Dupree always told me at some point you put your butt in a seat and get started. And that's it, right? There's no magic to it. It's a terrible process. It's absolutely the least glamorous thing you can do, but the only way to know what you're thinking for me is to write. And the only way through it is through it. You know, that's it. Don't look for shortcuts. Uh, just get the work done and realize how lucky you are to be able to do it. Well, discipline and perseverance, two qualities that transfer to a lot of other things. I know for me, at least easier said than done, but... For all of us, it's not that it's easy, but just think about, you know, it's funny. Somebody said to me recently, something I didn't deserve, like, oh, you're so, it's amazing. Like, how do you do all this work? And I said, what are you talking about? You know, think about how many people around you are working two jobs or three jobs that they don't love and working so hard for the people that they care about and for people they're devoted to. We're so lucky to get to do work that we love and that we choose. And, we, and I have so much support, right? I have an amazing husband and 
great extended family and family and, you know, God family and all of that. So it is hard to have discipline, but don't make excuses. Just get it done. I love that. And ma'am, thank you so much for your time here. Our last question we always like to throw out there is just if you have any words of wisdom or closing comments before we sign off here. Two things. Well, I already told you about my aunt saying never import other people's limitations. And I really hope you take that to heart. But the last thing I would say is, you know, my mother always said when I was feeling sorry for myself for complaining, on a scale of major world tragedies, yours is not a three. And just remember that sometimes it really is, right? In the case of Syria, it actually is a world tragedy. But most of us have the privilege of living in peace and lights that turn on and infrastructure that mostly works and roads that are paved and uh, schools that in non-COVID times are open, et cetera. It usually isn't a world tragedy. It usually is an obstacle to overcome. So just be inspired. I hope you'll read The Daughters of Kobani and find inspiration. And just remember that you're not alone in this. There are lots of people out fighting the good fight and uh, persevere. Well, that's great, ma'am. Thank you so much again. We're very appreciative that you're willing to spend time with us, that you've told all of these great stories. And I know they're going to continue to inspire the next generations of both male and female leaders coming up through the ranks of the military. So thank you again for your time and for all of our listeners. We will see you again next week. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of What Are You Reading? A podcast produced through partnership with DOD Reads. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, subscribe, and share it. Leave us a comment with your answer to the question, what are you reading? Also, visit dodreads.com for free books, book reviews, interviews with your favorite authors, and many more free professional development resources. See you next week.